Uh, welcome to a special podcast as part of the Technology and Construction Court's 150-year celebrations, TCC 150. Um, my name is um, Sam Townend. Uh, I was called to the bar by Lincoln's Inn in 1999. I practice here where we're recording this podcast, Keating Chambers, and I practice in building and construction law. I took silk in 2021, and the one point that's maybe of relevance about my practice is that I've been standing counsel for the National House Building Council, the NHBC, for the last decade or so. The case we're going to talk about is Marchant and Caswell and Redgrave Limited and the National House Building Council, also known, as I say, as NHBC. That was um, reported in 1976, Estates Gazette Law Reports, Volume 2 at page 23. It was a decision of His Honour Judge Stab, Queen's Counsel, Sir William Stab, uh, the official referee, one of three at the time, the predecessors of the judges of the Technology and Construction Court. He was a long-standing official referee, having served in that office from 1969, uh, and he became, uh, in fact, not that long after this case, the senior official referee, the predecessor to the lead judge position, uh, for a long period, 1978 to 1985. The case is, I think, a special one, not only intrinsically, but it's a a short trial of preliminary issues, a lovely little case, if you like, but it's the first reported case concerning uh, a 10-year new build home policy, now known, the NHBC version is known as the Buildmark policy, and it's still one of only a few cases uh, on these um, important uh, home build warranties uh, for new build homeowners. Secondly, because of some of the points raised in the case were applied, sometimes decades later. Uh, and thirdly, and most particularly, it was a case heard, as I say, 47 years ago, featuring three counsel, then all quite junior counsel, all of whom remain in practice, and all of whom I am delighted to say join me today to discuss this case, and more generally practice in the official referees or the ORs, uh, what it was like in the 1970s. I'll introduce them briefly now and then in more detail later. Professor John Uff at CBE King's Council, then simply Mr John Uff, was counsel for the plaintiff, Derek Edward Marchant, uh, a subsequent purchaser of the subject house, Paddock House, Whiteleaf, Prince's Risborough in Buckinghamshire. For the first defendant, Dr Christopher Thomas King's Council, then simply Mr Christopher Thomas, counsel for the first defendant, the building contractor who had constructed the house. And finally, Anthony Lord Grabener, King's Council, or Baron Grabener of Aldwych, then simply Mr Anthony Grabener, who was counsel for the second defendant, the NHBC, the issuer of the 10-year new build housing insurance certificate. So over the course of this podcast, we intend to discuss the case the points that may be drawn from it and, and the participants, and it's also intended that we'll widen out the discussion to one about what practice in the official referees was like in the 1970s. Uh, and I promise that after the introduction, I will speak less and they will speak more. 
Uh, so Marchant and Caswell, the subject home had the benefit of a new build 10-year warranty. This was first constructed by the first defendant, the builder, as one of a development of four houses completed in 1970. The first purchaser, a Mr Cutler, was in fact the managing director of the developer selling the home. He entered into a standard form NHBC house purchases agreement, an earlier version of the NHBC buildmark agreement and warranty as it's now known, with the first defendant builder, whereby firstly the builder agreed to make good defects notified in writing by the purchaser in the initial guarantee period, being the first two years from completion. Secondly, NHBC, using the builder as agent, undertook to underwrite the builder's obligations in the initial guarantee period. And for the remaining eight years of the 10-year policy, undertook to make good or defray the cost of making good any major structural defects that might become apparent during the remaining period. Again, on notice in writing by the purchaser. The agreement contained an arbitration agreement and finally, the purchaser was defined in the house purchaser's agreement to include his successor's entitled to the dwelling. The NHBC 10-year protection certificate was issued to Mr Cutler, the first purchaser, on the 10th of December 1970. The initial guarantee period, therefore, was to expire on the 9th of December 1972, two years later. Little did Mr Cutler, the first purchaser, know that the house suffered from a fundamental latent defect. As was found by his honour judge Stab, on the basis of expert evidence one assumes, it was structurally unsound by reason of unsuitable foundations and unconsolidated hardcore infill. Sometime in 1971, Mr Cutler had cause to complain to the first defendant about damp in the kitchen wall. He orally complained to the first defendant who duly sent round a plumber and repaired what turned out to be a leak. Early in 1972, Mr Cutler contemplated selling the house uh, and at the same time identified what he described as a fairly hefty crack in one wall dividing the dining room from the kitchen. At that time, he simply papered over it. In June 1972, the plaintiff, Mr Marchant, purchased the house from Mr Cutler. No survey was carried out. He had known the, the first defendant builder, and it's Mr Caswell, and it seemed in good condition. In the sales documents, he received the NHBC certificate, and he was aware of what he regarded as being uh, his rights under the certificate. Unfortunately, the condition of the house following op occupation rapidly deteriorated. There were cracked and leaking raising, rising mains and drains, cracks in the walls, all became apparent within a month or so of purchase. On the 3rd of July 1972, the plaintiff made an oral report to Mr Cutler, or the first defendant, followed up in writing to Mr Cutler. By March 1973, after the expiry of the initial guarantee period, subsidence had taken effect of the kitchen and dining room, as well as cracked brickwork in other including external walls. The plaintiff wrote again to Mr Cutler. This notification was passed on to the first defendant builder, who replied to state that its period of liability under this house purchaser's agreement had expired 
and that the plaintiff should look to the NHBC for a remedy. The plaintiff first wrote to the NHBC in May 1973, notifying of the claim. The NHBC took the view that the responsibility for the remedy lay with the builder, a continuing liability to carry out remedial work since the defects were first apparent during the two-year initial guarantee period. However, the builder still refused to pay. The plaintiff then commenced arbitration proceedings under the arbitration agreement, but again NHBC refused to join in to the arbitration. The parties therefore agreed, the parties to the arbitration, agreed that the arbitration should be stayed and that proceedings should be begun in the High Court to which NHBC should be joined. And that was the position at the beginning of this hearing. So the hearing before his Honour Judge Stapp was of preliminary issues, whether and if so to what extent the first defendant builder is liable to the plaintiff for the defects. This in turn required a decision as to whether the plaintiff, who was not the first purchaser, or of course a party to the original agreement, but a successor entitled to the purchaser, was entitled to the benefits under that agreement. And thirdly, how does the, and more generally, how does the agreement operate to impose liabilities on the builder and the NHBC respectively? We'll turn to examine the reasoning, but very shortly, the judge found that the plaintiff acquired the benefits accruing to the purchaser under the agreement, and the builder was liable for the costs of remedying the defects. So uh, to introduce the speakers and their roles in their, their case, I'd like to introduce first uh, counsel for the plaintiff, Professor Arf, who, who was called in 1970, having originally trained as a civil engineer, but after five years of engineering practice, transferred to the bar and became Donald Keating's last pupil. Uh, John, you, you took Silk in 1983 and in 1987 became the founding director of the Centre of Construction Law and Dispute Resolution at King's College London, where you remain Emeritus Professor of Engineering Law. Uh, you Later than this case, you chaired numerous inquiries, including the Southall Inquiry, and sitting jointly with Lord Cullen into the inquiry in, into rail safety systems. However, at the time of this case, you were just five years into practice at the bar. Uh, I just wonder if you could describe where you were in your terms of your practice at this point in time. Well, going back to 1976, uh, I think it's fair to say we were, we were all generalists. Um, we uh, were struggling to earn a living, um, which, which we did through a whole variety of cases, doing crime, particularly divorce, landlord and tenant, planning, uh, anything that came up. So it was uh, a, a, a particular pleasure to get a real building case, <laughs> someone, uh, some, something with um, uh, real expert evidence, um, a real building falling down, and uh, uh, an opportunity to um, uh, use a bit of uh, all the expertise one hoped one had acquired. Yes, you, you were instructed by Mr. Marchant, the owner of the Benighted House, through a firm called Wilkins and Son of Aylesbury. I don't know if you recall them at all. Yes, I, I, I had quite an extensive practice in the home counties in, in, in that uh, uh, part of um, North London, um, which uh, included doing quite extraordinary cases in local magistrates' courts, 
So, uh, uh, which is probably where I came across Wilkins. And so suddenly they had a real building case and uh, somehow, good fortune, my name came up. Excellent. Uh, so I was uh, jolly pleased to get a real building case. And I, I should say there weren't that many of them around, certainly not anything like the uh, volume of building cases where uh, everyone in Chambers, which of course is, is vastly bigger now than it was then. Dr Thomas, you were, if I may say, the baby of the three, having just been called three years prior in 1973. Um, you took silk in 1989 and in 1994 uh, completed a PhD in comparative law, also at King's College London, and you lecture on the MSc construction law at, at King's College. Now, you weren't quite the junior member of Keating Chambers at this time. I think John Marin had already become the junior tenant, but it's fair to say you were pretty junior at that point. Well, definitely, definitely. I, I, this was my first High Court case ever, having spent the previous three years dotting around Magistrates Court. Gray's um, Magistrates Court was a favourite where we did the, I think everyone, everyone had done the, um, the battered wives list on a Tuesday, I think it was. But um, the, 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 what I do remember about this case is that, as, as, as Professor Ruff says, uh, it, it was a real building case. How I came to get it at the brief was because John Dyson was in another case and it was overrunning. And so I got it as a return from him. Right. Uh, he, he obviously knew the solicitors and was going to do the case. And, so, and I can't remember how many hours before I had to turn up in court to, to, to defend, I had got the brief. I can't remember that now. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was, it was probably the day or day before or something of like that. John Dyson, of course, later became the first High Court judge, the first lead judge of the Technology and Construction Court, and then obviously <laughs> Master of the Rolls. And, and in the Supreme Court as Lord Dyson, yes. Yeah. I remember him saying, sort of, good luck or something. <laughs> so what do you do when you return a brief late? I don't know. So it was a return for you and also um, your first outing in the High Court and unfortunately not, not a winning one. Not a winning one, but it did actually inspire me to, um, to take note of the third party rule. And at some later stage, Donald Keating asked me to... Uh, write submissions on behalf of Chambers to the Law Commission when they were considering privity of contract, contract for the benefit of third parties. I'm hopeful we'll come on to that. Lord Grabin, are you um, active for the council, as His Honour Judge Stab referred to it in the case? You were called in 1968, you took silk in 1981 and became a life peer in the House of Lords in 1999, appointed by the then Prime Minister Tony Blair. You've sat as a Deputy High Court Judge and are and remain the long-standing head of chambers at one Essex court in the temple. Uh, your work at the bar is legion, uh, but you have many other interests, including academia, uh, and you were chair of governors at the LSE from 1998 to 2007, and master of Clare College, Cambridge University from 2014 until two years ago, 2021. But at the time that this case took place, you were eight years call, you were somewhat more established and you'd just been appointed or about to be appointed to the first of a multitude of public appointments uh, as standing junior counsel to the Department of Trade and the Export Credits Guarantee Department. 
So uh, where were you in, in your practice at this point in time and, and in relation to your client, the, the council? I think I was just uh, very in a very similar position to John. And then I was beginning to develop, you know, some commercial practice. And one of my clients was the NHBC. And I remember the name Tappin, but I think he must have been the standing solicitor within the NHBC. But there was a woman whose name I'm afraid I just can't remember, who I did know and who uh, was within his department. And they used to come down together and send me quite a lot of work. And I also did, I think, quite a lot of drafting for uh, the NHBC. I think I might have had something to do with the form of the certificate at some stage. Yeah. Um, and then we actually got a case into court, and this was the case. I may say I had no memory at all of the case when you first emailed me. I've obviously read it since then, and it sort of does ring faint bells. But uh, it's an extremely interesting case because it raises, as you indicated earlier, you know, lots of um, very interesting, you know, points. Yeah. Well, and very much the first case that I know of where there's been a reported decision on this on this policy, on this 10-year policy. Now, just turning back to 1976, before we dip into those points of principle, did you, did you, had you come across each other at all in practice at that point? We what have, were your impressions? Well, we have, we have subsequently, but I don't think we had before. Subsequently, but uh, I, I didn't know who you were and you didn't know who I was. <laughs> and did you have any impressions, any of you, of his Honour Judge Stab going into the case? Well, I, I knew that he was a pal of my pupil master, who was the late Sam Stamler, who was a very distinguished um, silk and was the real absolute key character in the formation of our chambers. But he he was a friend of the person he always called Willie Stamp. And um, I, I do have a, a good memory that he had an extremely high reputation. Willie Stamp was very well rated. I think the OR's corridor was not a particularly well rated part of the legal system, not least because they did not have high court status. The judges who sat there were official referees, I think with what we would call circuit judge or county court status at the time, and there were just two or three of them. But he had a very strong reputation as an extremely good lawyer. Mm. And then turning back to the case, and there are a number of points that arise. But the first aspect of the case is um, whether the benefits under the policy are acquired by the subsequent purchaser, whether the 10-year warranty is a covenant running with the land. Now, this, Anthony, for your clients, this would have been quite an important point, I imagine. Otherwise, the 10-year warranty adds little to an ordinary contractual claim between a first purchaser against the builder or developer from whom they bought the property. I think it was fundamental to the thinking of the NHBC. Well, I'm just guessing, but I mean, rationally, it must have been fundamental to their thinking that the property would be sold or might be sold and that that might happen within the 10-year period. And inevitably, it would be critical to the purchaser, the ultimate purchaser, or subsequent purchasers down the line to get the benefit of any certificate that was there. Apart from anything else, it would also be of value to the vendor, because the vendor would like to be able to rely upon it as 
evidencing the quality of you know the house and some some underlying insurance cover so I think that, that was a very important part of the arrangement and I always the most difficult law I ever learned was well I, I thought it was difficult at the time I mean it isn't actually difficult but the relationship between law and equity was quite an important concept to grasp but the other concept to grasp once you found out what a contract did was the concept of the responsibilities under the contract uh, and the rights under the contract being transferred you know into third parties we knew about assignment yeah. but the the, the, con- the concept of a liability flowing on or moving but this of course would be a right accruing to a subsequent acquirer and I think that was very important to the NHBC structure and it worked and we relied on that was it Smith and the River Douglas catchment board I think produced yes. that result yeah. and that was entirely consistent with the landlord, landlord concept of the covenant running with the land. Yeah, the, the judge approaches it in terms of a, as a covenant, as a landlord concept yeah. running, running with the land. And um, he, he says, uh, in my judgment, it's clearly a covenant which runs with the land. The plaintiff has an interest in the land, indeed precisely the same interest as the original covenantee. The covenant touches and concerns the land, very familiar uh, language there, which is capable of identification. And it matters not that the covenanters were strangers in the sense they had not conveyed the land to the covenantee. Accordingly, Section 78 of the Law of Property Act 1925 applies. No question of assignment arises. And, uh, yeah, so on that basis, he concluded that it did pass on to the subsequent purchaser. One interesting point here, which um, comes from my uh, experience, is that this particular bit of legal analysis hasn't really been carried forward into the more recent understanding. Uh, They have, in fact, uh, judges more recently have analysed it in terms of uh, sort of implied assignment or some such and treated it simply as a a, a contractual concept, not not, um, uh, something that's uh, potentially a a, a covenant or uh, something that attaches to the land, but is is an implied contractual Assignment. And, Why would and, they do that? Well, I, I don't think anyone has really engaged with it fully. And in the case of Lartfleet and Alison Holmes, um, uh, Mr. Justice Fraser puts it put, uh, simply refers to the express definition of the owner beneficiary as being the owner and any subsequent owner, uh, and then says this: the protection therefore stays with the property and means that the first purchaser could sell on with the subsequent purchaser taking the property with the comfort of such remaining period of the 10 years as as is unexpired at the date of the sale. This is important as it avoids later purchaser, the later purchaser having potential legal issues concerning privity of contract or lack of it with the company that built the property. I'm afraid that's the extent of the the extent to which they go into it is not necessarily inconsistent, I suppose. The concept of the covenant running with the land avoids all that problem completely, mm-hmm. and uh, I can see immediately see problems if you treat it as an assignment because if there's nothing in writing constituting the assignment, <laughs> then uh, it will be an equitable assignment only, mm-hmm. which raises separate questions about who's entitled to sue and all the rest of it and who can give a discharge. And so, I mean, I don't understand why people are not happy to accept this reasoning, which is 
is very fundamental and very, very traditional in that world. Yeah, well, I, I just think um, it, it's really, uh, I suppose, been taken as read that it simply passes without anyone uh, going into precisely why. But I must say that my impression is that the judges, when they the language that they use, it more recently doesn't necessarily reflect that it's a it's a landlord concept, if you like. Sounds as though it needs to be looked at by a higher court. Perhaps if Christopher had managed to pursue his appeal, we uh, might might have had the benefit of the court of appeals. Yeah, I, I think I think Tony, that one of the reasons may maybe why judges fight shy of the um, uh, Smith and Sykes or Farm and the with uh, the, the Douglas Catchpole case is because Denning, Lord Denning had used that case to expand or to expound uh, the idea that this is this was went back beyond the Tweddle and Atkinson and the introduction of the third-party prohibition of reliance. Uh, and, and albeit that the other judges in, the, in, the, in that case um, emphasised their, their, the propriety of their approach, which featured Section 78, as, as you rightly say. But the, the, the judgment in, in, the, in, in the case was, again, um, confounded in the Court of Appeal in the... In, you'll remember it in the Midland Silicones and Scruttons case and the House of Lords slapped Denning down on that albeit he was the only one giving a judgment that wasn't in line with all the other four so I think that is a reason that people have found other other grounds on which to on which to run it but as you rightly say it's something that deserves higher treatment and also interestingly in the in the Law Commission the report to inviting commentary on privity of contract, contracts for the benefit of third parties, 1991, uh, Section 78 didn't get a mention. Section 51 of the Law of Property Act did, and I think that probably would have covered the circumstance in any case. But but, uh, that's speculation. Yeah. Um, Well, an interesting aspect which uh, could be revisited, as we all agree. The second aspect of the case is whether liability under the policy is triggered on notice of a minor manifestation of a defect, uh, which is obviously of significance for building insurance generally. The point here to note is that earlier in the judgment, his Honour Judge Stab uh, states that he's satisfied that the, the leak in the rising main causing the original damp that, that, that was subject to the original complaint 1971 and the cracks in the dividing wall between the dining room and the kitchen, the the early 1972 subject of that second complaint, were manifestations of the underlying major structural defect in the foundations. And the judge memorably uh, says at the foot of the pre-pamultimate page, um, uh, memorably for those of us who practice in the area, a defect may have differing forms in which it manifests itself as the defect develops, albeit it is the same defect throughout. The purchaser can do no more than report the manifestations and it is for the builder to make good the defect which has produced these manifestations. Certainly it's, a, it's something that I have used in subsequent cases where there's been questions about um, when pursuing recovery claims questions about whether it, uh, the, the defect has been notified in, in good time. The key significance was that the notice, the form of which we'll come back to, was given within the initial guarantee period. The builder was fixed with liability and that liability continued 
notwithstanding the intermediate expiry of the initial guarantee period. John, I, I suppose you were pretty neutral on this topic. As far as you were concerned, once it was established it's a major stru- structural defect, you didn't really mind on whose, uh, with whom this uh, liability landed. Well, yes, it was subsequently established as a major structural defect, but of course uh, we, we, we're here concerned with whether adequate notice was given, and, and uh, as the judge says, the purchaser can do no more than report manifestations. And uh, throughout the uh, interesting history that's set out in quite a lot of detail in the report, the, the signs that something was wrong with the house uh, led to all sorts of potentially misleading conclusions, like uh, there was a problem with a, with a, with a water main which um, sprung open uh, because uh, whatever it was attached to, um, uh, including the foundations, had moved. And that, that's something one can rationalise subsequently, but at the time, of course, the poor owner had no idea. And Christopher, I suppose this was the uh, finding that you were most resistant to. Yes, I, I think the, the clients, um, Castle and Redgrave, were determined in, in their mind that they'd done what there was, had, they'd addressed what the defect that had been complained about. And um, as, what, I mean, they didn't paper over the cracks, they, 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 they got the decorator in and filled the cracks and <laughs> <laughs> remedied it, and it, all, it, it, was, it passed muster to, to be sold. Uh, in, in what everyone thought was good condition. So that, that they felt a bit sore that they were landed with it. But it's, a, it's an interesting point, and I'm surprised it hasn't been uh, used more in relation to, for example, the JCT, the, the, the reporting defects liability at the end. What do you report in order to fix the uh, builder with liability? I'm, I'm surprised it hasn't had more of an airing in that that. that those particular passages that you refer to. Well, I imagine in the consumer contract circumstances, the insurance circumstances, it's been taken as read, really, that once once notified, then you're then you're fixed. Yes, what, it, it depends on the experience. You can trace it back. It depends on the experience of the person doing the looking. But but as as as, as John said, I mean, uh, a leak in a pipe doesn't necessarily point to um, to, to, to to the likelihood of subsidence from l- lack of compaction. Yeah. I think that I have no memory of this, but I'm sure that it would have been in our interest to be pressing for the manifestation argument yeah. uh, in order to nail the jerry builder, uh, Christopher's client, which he obviously was. Uh, it's a classic jerry building case, isn't it, really? It is. Um, and, um, and I'm sure that's, uh, that result in the case was, uh, was, was an important part of the argument that we must have made supporting, uh, you, you might have been indifferent about which way it went, but we were quite concerned that we would be off the hook in terms of the eight-year bit and he'd be on the hook in respect of the two-year bit. This, of course, is an absolutely classic chestnut, the, the, the argument about the manifestation, the early manifestation of what turns out to be something very horrible. And, I mean, this arises in limitation cases, you know, whether or not what happened, you know, what, what was originally discovered, was that, you know, was that the first manifestation of the matter that's ultimately the subject of the litigation? And if it was, then you're outside the limitation period. And if things got worse, then 
you know, there might be a different limitation period being applied and so on. There are now extension powers, I think, available to the court in certain circumstances. But um, this issue is an old chestnut issue, and it all turns on the expert evidence and the findings of fact. Absolutely critical. You must come across this all the time in your business. Absolutely, absolutely, and um, similar issues. Uh, yeah, all, all the time um, uh, that, that it arises. Although I have to say, in this particular context, as I say, in, um, because of the wise words of um, Sir William Stab, I've deployed this uh, quite effectively on uh, a number of cases where. As I say, we're seeking to pursue the recovery of claims that have been been paid out. It applies equally to the end of the ten-year period, and with, with success, it's not usually pushed against because it's the particular consumer context uh, and the expectation as to notice is not so strict. And, and that moves me on, in fact, to the third issue that, that this case deals with, which is the form of notice. The uh, agreement itself, the house builders' agreement itself, and the uh, insurance certificate, which perhaps you you wrote, Anthony, requires expressly that um, notice should be given in writing. But of course, here in the first two-year period, there was no notice in writing given to the first defendant, or indeed to NHBC. Now, John, you you contended that the the oral representations. Uh, to Mr. Cutler initially, and then uh, by the first uh, to the first defendant by Mr. Cutler initially, and then by the plaintiff subsequently were enough, notwithstanding the contractually required notice, written notice hadn't been given within the in initial guarantee period, uh, and um, in fact uh, Sir William Stab cites your submissions as Mr. Arf contends that Mr. Caswell by complying with the report of Mr Cutler in the first instance and by doing the work has waived his right now to insist upon a notice in writing which he did not require at the time. Uh, So oral notice acted upon by the first defendant was enough, the judge decided. In fact, emphatically so. And he says, so it seems to me plain beyond peradventure not a phrase that we see so often in cases these days. Uh, and indeed, Mr. Caswell in evidence did not really think to say otherwise, that Mr. Caswell was content to accept from Mr. Cutler and the plaintiff oral reports of the defect. He cannot now say that he did not know that he was waiving his right to insist on a report in writing. I'm just wishing I could remember the cross-examination of Mr. Caswell, but I can, <laughs> I can reconstruct it. <laughs> Indeed, Poor chap couldn't have said very much. Really. <laughs> an interesting aspect of the case is that the judge goes on to further conclude that the waiver and estoppel operates against the first defendant, not only in favour of Mr. Cutler, but it also binds him against the plaintiff, Mr. Marchant, your client, uh, Christopher, this was something that sh- also you were presumably quite resistant to. Here. Yes, I, I have a feeling that this aspect was part of the, th- the thinking for, for an appeal. And it's interesting that um, the judge cites the Lickius and Milestone Motor Policies case, which again was a judgment of Lord Dennings, and has, was subsequently um, regarded as not good law. Because in that case, Denning held, it was something to do with um, motor policies that he held, I think it was, that 
it didn't matter that notice hadn't been given. And, and I think that subsequent cases have felt, felt that went far too far. So that, and I can't remember the cases in which it, it did. So it meant that. But anyway, the point was that what Mr. Caswell did was to, in his mind, to have remedied what he was asked to do. And, and it, it comes back to the point as the experience of the, the person doing the looking at the manifestation. Well, in fact, this, this point um, uh, derived from, uh, from March and was applied by Mr. Justice Ramsey in the case of Harrison and Shepherd Holmes to 2011 case, uh, EWHC 1811, uh, at paragraphs 174 to 188. He, he, in fact, develops the point, which is again concerning a claim under NHBC mill, build mark, and downplays the significance or the importance of the form of notice further. To, it goes on to say at paragraph 181, if somebody gave oral notice of a problem with a request for the contractor to deal with it, then the contractor ought to say that a written notice must be given. In Mr. Justice Ramsey's view, in quotes, the important aspect of the notice under section two of the build mark cover, which is what it subsequently became, is for there to be notice. Whilst a written notice is required as a record to prevent disputes, in the circumstance of this case, I consider the actions of the claimant, who gave oral notice, was sufficient to be a notice in this case. So we can see that this uh, was a stepping off point in this kind of uh, case. I think there's this particularly interesting point because I think there's definitely been a change in judicial thinking. You probably remember that I think a couple of years ago now there's a, I regard as a rather absurd decision of the Supreme Court, but there is a decision of the Supreme Court in a case in which the contract provided that there couldn't be any amendment to the bargain unless it was in writing. And uh, there was an amendment to the deal, but it wasn't recorded in writing. And the Supreme Court, in his wisdom, uh, my pal Jonathan Sumption, I think, gave the lead judgment. But and I can't remember if there were any dissents. But um, they can, he concluded, and they concluded, that um, if it were not in writing, then it was not a valid amendment. Um, whether it leaves open a debate about waiver and estoppel, I'm not sure. I think it probably does. But I, I can't remember if those, I, those possibilities were pleaded and argued in that case. But, um, I mean, it does seem to me on classic estoppel lines that, you know, if it were treated by uh, the relevant parties as being an effective notice, uh, the fact that it wasn't in writing shouldn't make any difference. And yeah. similarly, I mean, provided there was, you know, it was said and evidence of it was demonstrated and all the rest of it, um, in the in the contract in the contract position, again, I mean, one has always been brought up on the basis that uh, the parties are free to make any bargain that they wish, and the fact that they might have said in an earlier draft, uh, any amendment has to be in writing agreed by both parties doesn't inhibit you subsequently, the same parties, concluding, well, notwithstanding that, we'll nevertheless make a, a binding oral amendment, uh, you know, to that agreement without the need for anything in writing. They wouldn't go through that process. Nobody would think about this until uh, uh, actually they were in court being cross-examined, probably. <laughs> no, it may be unwise, but the, but yeah. the point is you, you are free to agree. But there is a, I think, that 
that Supreme Court case, if it holds water, um, and at the moment it's the law, um, um, might represent a, rather a departure from the point that we've just been discussing and maybe a different result. I personally think that a very just result would be has been achieved here because it's perfectly obvious that the notice was given orally and it was regarded as being a perfectly sufficient on. way of doing it. Mm-hmm. And acted yes. That takes us on to the fourth and probably the, the last aspect of this case, which is of some interest, uh, the relationship between the court proceedings and, and arbitration, uh, as might be the House Builders Agreement contained an arbitration agreement. Uh, and although this wasn't argued out in, in the case, it is a feature of the case that the uh, as the judge notes, uh, towards the end of reciting the facts of the case, arbitration proceedings were instituted between the plaintiff and the builder. But since the council would not consent to being joined in the arbitration, and since liability appeared inevitably to fall upon one or other or both of the builder and the council, it was agreed, agreed between the plaintiff and first defendant, that the arbitration proceedings should be adjourned and that fresh proceedings should be begun in the High Court in which the council should be joined. That, that is indeed what, what, what happened. There, there was no stay application here, but plainly it was in the interest of both the plaintiff and the first defendant, or so they thought, that the NHBC Anthony York clients were brought into the case. Well, I'm again. I can't remember, but it would obviously not have been in the interests of NHBC to find themselves made a party to arbitration proceedings or processes uh, in litigation between, you know, the purchaser or the owner and the builder. So we weren't prepared voluntarily to participate and we couldn't be forced to do so because we weren't parties to any agreement to arbitrate. And I'm, I'm confident that that's still the same position. I mean, you, you might know from your own experience, but I'm sure that we, we would have, and I would have had to advise on that point, and I'm quite sure that that was our, the position that we adopted before these proceedings were instituted. Yeah, well, in, in fact, there was a case called Zeelander and Lang in 2000, uh, a decision of his honour Judge Havery QC, uh, reported in the, the short-lived technology construction law reports, uh, where the judge found that um, it was in fact unenforceable under consumer legislation. Mm. It fettered the consumer clients, uh, the consumer beneficiaries' rights and, and fell foul of the unfair terms in consumer uh, regulations 1994 uh, that was in fact a stay a stay application which was rejected uh, and subsequently in the drafting NHBC has removed that provision for arbitration so it hasn't featured in the last 20 or so years of of, of the policy so that is the that's the case the consequences were dr. Thomas's clients were found liable They were ordered to pay the plaintiff's costs of the trial of the issue. And interestingly, the second defendant's costs were reserved. I don't know what they were reserved to when they were going to be decided, but I don't suppose anyone can remember that point. Absolutely no Um, memory. Nor can I remember what 
well, I mean, the damages were to be assessed, but I can't remember what, what happened on that either. Well, it was the date of assessment that was... Yeah, the, it was uh, the date of assessment, point, but the, yes. the actual... what, How much money passed, I don't know. Well, I imagine, like so often with these things, since subsequently prevailed, there finally were three excellent counsel and uh, heads were put together and uh, a resolution <laughs> was, was found. But you did contemplate, Christopher, I think you mentioned the possibility of appeal. Yes, I think I must have been advised as to, as to, uh, asked to advise, and I'm not, I'm not even sure I didn't start doing a, a, a notice of appeal, but I can't remember. But I certainly do remember that the client had enough of spending money on, on me by then, I think. I hope he decided to spend his money on putting the house right. <laughs> well, exactly, that's probably the best course for him. And I was just going to say that, um, you know, on occasions such as this, one of the questions you always ask yourself, possibly you don't say it to the client, well, you do actually, is, well, where are the merits? And when you read through this, the merits are all one way. Yeah. So it would have been an incredibly difficult case to succeed with, I think, in the Court of Appeal, absent some obvious error of reasoning or analysis, which I don't think there is, actually. Well, in fact, the merits come through, and I must say the prose also, I very much, why I describe it as a lovely case, because I just enjoyed reading it. It was written so, so well. I mean, I wonder if we could widen out the discussion a little about um, to to practice and to to Sir William Stabb himself. Um, uh, As you may know, as part of the... TCC 150 celebrations. Sir Peter Coulson, Lord Justice Coulson, uh, together with David Sawtell, a junior at 39 Essex Street, have written a book called The History of the Technology and Construction Court on its 150th anniversary. It's published by Hart in 2023. And Sir Peter Coulson describes his own recollections of Sir William Stabb. He was the, I think, probably the first judge he came across in in his practice. He always tried to make junior barristers feel at home in his court. At the end of those big multi-party directions hearings in the 1970s and 80s that so often took place in the large but ill-lit court in Alexander House on Kingsway, the only thing the junior had to do was to stand up and ask for a certificate to counsel. Judge Stabb would peer into the gloaming and say, well, Mr. Coulson, I had no idea I had the benefit of your wise counsel this afternoon. <laughs> but now that I know, of course you can have the certificate for which you asked. And he finishes this. I did not flatter myself. He said that to all of us. <laughs> so I don't know if you have any particular recollections, John. I think you got you subsequently got to know Sir William Stabb quite well, if, if not already. Well, uh, I did for all sorts of strange reasons, including the fact that I now live in his house. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, I, I must say I, I, I bought with, with, with no question of defects or substance. <laughs> um, uh, he lived in a, a village called Chipperfield in, in, in Hertfordshire and uh, uh, moved out of the big house into a smaller one. Uh, he was very well known in the village. Uh, in his latter years, he used to travel around in his mobility scooter uh, pointing out that people needed to cut their lawn and things like that. Uh, he, he was a terrific character, um, but and, and, uh, a most kindly man. Um, uh, I, I think uh, Donald Keating had an arrangement with him, uh, whereby when someone from Chambers appeared before him for the first time, he used to ring up 
Mm. Uh, Donald and report, and I'm, 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 I'm sure he would have done that for you, Christopher. <laughs> I wonder if that's reassuring or terrifying. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> well, I, I do, I do endorse what uh, Peter Paulson says about it. He was very kind. <clears throat> I can't remember the circumstance of this case, but certainly whenever I subsequently appeared in front of him, it was always a delight. Did you often appear in the uh, ORs at this this time, Anthony, or was it a no. rare a rare? Uh, it was visit? A very it was very rare, and it was actually because I was more focused on the insurance side of the story. So, I've, and I've done quite a lot of insurance work over the years. I was absolutely dreading the prospect of um, a building practice, to be perfectly honest, <laughs> because I think when I was in pupillage, I had to be involved in the production of some appalling Scotch engine. And, and it was all about some, it was, a, it was about some waste material. I think Donald Keating might have been involved in, the, in a huge arbitration and it was all about putting rubbish into a great big container. And, and after a period of time, out would come electricity. I think this was a clear thing. The whole thing failed. And I remember my chambers were involved on behalf of the villains of that particular piece. And um, I was deputed to go and sit for hours on end, you know, fiddling about with tiny entries in what would now be, of course, an electronic spreadsheet. So I, I presume it would be done rather more sensibly these days. Yes, although I think it's a slight sort of misapprehension about the construction bar that it's all about Scott schedules and counting bags of nails, which is another phrase that's often said. Um, as, as you know, as you will have known from this case, that, that uh, interesting points of law do do arise. So the, the thing about, and I completely agree with that, and I do understand that, the only problem is that to get to the interesting point of law, you've got to go through the grind, uh, or might have to go through the grind of the process, which is something that I just couldn't face. And, and, and we never, and our chambers, you know, never really did much of it. If we came across it, it was only because it, there was some, something else going on, like an insurance point uh, or some really nice contract point that we found ourselves Fancy. involved with. But I've never done any building work. It was a bit of a smokescreen to put off people like you. No, I um, completely understand. His Honour Judge Newey at his retirement um, uh, confessed that he frequently ordered Scott schedules but had never actually tried one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, at this, at this time, there were probably, I think, two other official referees, one of whom at least, well, Edgar Fay, Queen's yeah. Council, mm. sat, and he, he was interesting, not least because I think he was the first person to publish a text on the official referee's mm. procedure on, on case management. The other one that um, was Sir Norman Richards, QC, mm. who sat until 1977, who really has a quite different reputation to Sir William Stamp. Uh, and Richard Fernihuff KC described him as sometimes an irascible judge yeah. uh, and Junior were particularly terrified apparently in, in, in uh, coming across him or finding themselves before him I should say 
Uh, although he did have one redeeming habit, if you can call it that, which is that he's reported to, to, to if council settled a case before lunch on the first day, they were always rewarded with a glass of sherry. <laughs> Yeah, but I, true. Do you, true. I don't know if you have any recollections of either Edgar Fay or Norman Richards. I've got a memory of um, Edgar Fay because um, just before I took Silk, I was acting in the Crown Agents Inquiry. Um, and prior to that inquiry, there were two inquiries on the Crown Agents collapse. Um, I won't weary you with the detail of what that was all about, but it was a great, great investigation. Um, my client was the Exchequer and Audit Department. It was all about accounting stuff, very complicated. But Edgar Fay had done an earlier report, and then for some reason or other, because he'd done a perfectly excellent report, actually, he's a clever man, and then they had another public inquiry, big major inquiry, but my memory is that essentially Edgar Fay's findings were confirmed in the later inquiry after a good deal more money had been spent. I do remember, I have a vague memory of Norman Richards and only in terms of reputation, which I think accords with what you've said. <laughs> I, I recall being led in front of Norman Richards and, and, and would, would certainly um, uh, second what Richard Verney have said about him. I was fortunate not to be in firing line then. Um, but uh, uh, Edgar Fay was uh, a, a, a delightful man mm. who had had an astonishing practice, a uh, very energetic man. When he took the appointment, he, he was unknown in the field uh, of, of building contracts, but soon. Uh, uh, got a terrific reputation. Um, uh, uh, he had a, 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 a brain that was capable of uh, in, encompassing anything that was put before him. And uh, he was very rarely overturned on appeal. And uh, the other thing to say about him is that he lived to be 100. And we gave a dinner for him uh, on his uh, shortly after his 100th birthday, at which he stood up and made a 20-minute speech with no notes. And uh, I, I certainly hope to do the same myself. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, he was, uh, he, he, he was a, I was in front of him many times as a junior, and, and he was a great supporter of the Official Referees Bar Association, the forum. Yeah, Orban. Orban. Yeah. And um, uh, I remember him t attending <clears throat> garden parties up well, out, well, well into his hundred. <clears throat> And he was very pleased because he got he got his pension drawn at a time when it was very advantageous. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a it was a phenomenon of the official referees that until 1993 and the appointment of Humphrey Lloyd QC, they were not appointing building construction practitioners to the bench to carry out this work. Now I don't know whether it was demand or supply. You see what I mean? Whether it was too remunerative, frankly, to remain at the at the bar, or whether, uh, for some reason, anyway, there wasn't a, any there weren't appointments from within the the practicing bar to to the to those judicial positions. All sorts of hints were dropped, I can tell you, and uh, but, but no no one rose to the occasion. I'm sure Donald was uh, Donald Keating was uh, in, invited to put his name forward and. Uh, wouldn't think of doing it. Maybe to do with the status of the, yeah, uh, of the judges. Until I've naively assumed that it was all to do with the knighthood. 
um, and, and the status of a High Court uh, appointment. Yes. Because it was actually an extremely tough job and there's no justification on the face of it for uh, them being treated in any way other than as High Court judges. And Absolutely. And, and one of the astonishing things was that official referee decisions, including this one, were not officially reported and there was no system for reporting building cases or official referee cases until the building law reports were started in, in 1976. And even then they didn't report cases as they were decided. They produced uh, a whole list of uh, cases, the backlog of cases that the building practitioners needed in, in, in their first volumes and didn't start reporting cases as they happened until some years later. It's odd because these cases, and this is a perfect working example of it, gave mm. rise to some interesting and um, yeah. important legal points. Mm. So it is surprising that um, the context was such that um, it was not thought appropriate to report them. And, and it wasn't as if there weren't practitioners at the construction mm. bar, the ORs bar, whatever you want to call mm. it, at that time that weren't of appointable uh, merit because we've had Sir Patrick Garland, Sir Anthony May, John Dyson himself, who all who all went to the bench straight in as High Court judges. Not as official referees, that's right. The, the uh, first person from Chambers who was actually appointed as a, an official referee, and, and the last official referee was, was Peter Coulson, who actually sat as an official referee for about three years before he was then promoted to the High Court bench. But it was a very awkward period in the 90s and uh, early 2000s when everybody accepted that, that the status of uh, those doing TCC work, because the name had then been changed, really had to be brought up to High Court level. But there were all sorts of uh, procedural and, 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 and administrative difficulties in doing that, as, as shown by Peter Coulson, who, who took, took the job uh, as an official referee. Didn't, uh, wasn't Lewis Horser an official referee? Yes, he was. Yes, he was. He, he had a brilliant, he was, brilliant mind. He was, an, he was an outstanding commercial lawyer. Mm -hmm. There was a story there about him because he's um, an outstanding advocate and, a, and an outstanding commercial lawyer and probably well, would have been, I'm sure, destined for the High Court bench at the very least. And he, I think he'd participated in some murder case and had got uh, yes. a decision of Eustace Roskill overturned in the Court of Appeal. Roscoe had been sitting as a recorder or a first instance judge and had got the burden of proof the wrong way around, something fundamental. And thereafter, Lewis never never got to where he should have got. And I do have a memory that um, the front page of the Times, when he was appointed as, a, the, as an official referee, recorded the surprise of the, of the bar and the legal profession generally that Lewis had not gone on to the High Court bench. Well, not only that, he yeah. was deprived, he became the senior official referee mm. following retirement of Sir William Stapp. And he became the first person to occupy that position, not to be offered a knighthood. Right. And it, um, in, in the, the TCC 150 book, Sir Peter Coulson is quite frank about it uh, and says, 
um, refers to his underappointment being so obvious there was a story about it in private eye. Some said it was because he was a conscientious objector during the war, others that it was a result of anti-Semitism, and some even suggested that it was because his client got a shorter sentence than many of the others at the end of the great train robbery trial. I think he knows that. But um, yeah, the high, high court bench's loss was certainly the TCC. He game. certainly he didn't shirk notoriety. He was he was a he was a, a very 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 fine lawyer. Mm. I remember Stanwyck coming back to chambers for tea time one day. He was being led by Hawser in a case, and Hawser had been cross-examining a Persian law expert. And Stanley came back into Chambers, and he was no slouch, he was a smart guy. He said he'd just heard the finest cross-examination he'd ever seen at the bar. And when the judge came to give judgment, I'm afraid I can't remember who the judge was, but they lost on every single point in the case, except on the Persian law expert evidence as to whether or not there had been a release of liability and the judge decided accepting the cross-examination uh, of Horza that um, he destroyed the Persian law witness and there had been a release under Persian law and they won the case on that basis. Persian law basis. <laughs> and, uh, and they lost on all the merits on every other point. I always thought that the judge showed remarkable intellectual integrity in that yeah. case. And for the life of me, I can't remember who the judge was. <laughs> but Horser was a great man. Can I ask you about this just before we finish up? You're still in practice, all three of you, and obviously not going to court every day in the way that you were uh, when the Marchant case was uh, heard. But, I mean, are there things that, that you particularly remark on as having... You know, been for the better subsequently and, and some things perhaps for the worse. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but um, it is, I'm afraid to say, nearly 50 years since this case was heard. Practice and procedure culture must have changed significantly. Um, yeah, the status of the official referees and the whole uh, standing of construction law has changed in but it took about 30 years to do it. And um, uh, I, I've been running conferences at King's College in the Centre for Construction or there, and, and, and many people have observed, including Donald Keating, that um, uh, really the progress of law in, in England has shifted. Uh, commercial law uh, is no longer dependent on shipping cases. Construction law is one of the great generators of serious law. I mean, if you only think of the, all those cases in the law of tort in the 1980s and uh, many other aspects as well. And Donald uh, observed that construction law um, by the uh, end of the last century either had or shortly would uh, become the, the, the dominant source of commercial law. And uh, that is what has happened. But it was astonishing that at the same time we still had trials at first instance before official referees who remained senior circuit judges. And why it took so long to bring about the change, I do not know. But it it was also accompanied by the, the fact that there was no proper system of reporting. And not only this case wasn't uh, uh, 
uh, was, was not properly reported in, in, in the official law reports. Um, there are other cases which I personally remember being given dog-eared, typed copies of the judgment, which is the only, only place you could get it, and citing something like that to the court. Um, and uh, there was even an argument that these cases should not be cited by the court because they were not officially reported. Mm. So it was that bad. And why it took so long, I do not know. But thank goodness uh, uh, we have arrived at a position where the judges are proper judges and uh, high court judges. And through Peter Corson at last, we've got someone promoted to the Court of Appeal. Well, um, I was going to comment on that, actually. I mean, one of the things that um, and peculiarities when I first started was you had the senior circuit judges, but you referred to them as my lord and your lordship in this transitional, transi- very long transitional phase that you remark on, John. But actually, the so far as the, the interesting thing about the status of the court and the judges, uh, of course, when Sir Peter Coulson was the lead judge in the TCC, we finally had three women judges and three male judges. One of those women judges... Baroness Carr, as she will shortly be, be, is now going to be our first ever, and she sat in the TCC as well as the Commercial Court, she's, a, she's going to be our first ever Lady Chief Justice. Also, we have many senior practitioners, I'm conscious that we're all men around this table, many senior women practitioners now, yes. and of course with uh, Mrs Justice Jefford and Mrs Justice O'Farrell currently leading the TCC. Any other changes that you'd remark upon? I think procedurally is unrecognisable. I mean, the world has changed dramatically. Pre-trial preparation is much more sophisticated now. I'm sure that's true generally in construction work as well as commercial work. Um, But I mean, if I were to stray into other parts of the legal system, I'm afraid things have not improved. They've got rather worse if you look at the criminal side of the story or small litigation where I mean I remember once being taught um, when I was studying law at university that the law like the Ritz Hotel was open to all and that proposition was as true then as it is today I'm afraid. Sadly yes yeah with the demise of legal aid. Christopher any final uh, comments from you? About well it's very interesting you talk about Peter Coulson you cited this and Ramsey both of whom were my pupils, and it makes me feel rather old. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, even though I was the youngest man. of the three of us. Good chat, Ray. Well, gentlemen, Professor Uff, Dr. Thomas, Lord Graminer, thank you for joining me on this uh, journey back through time, to some extent, to review the case of Marchand and Caswell. Uh, and I hope that you uh, enjoy this podcast. <laughs>